Bam, there we are. We're live. At least I hope so. Welcome, everyone, to Casa Live. Hopefully live. Uh, we've been gone for, I don't know, the better part of a month. At least it feels like it. It's definitely been at least three weeks or so. But uh, welcome back, everyone, to Casa Live. We are here. I want to preface this with uh, a little, a, a, a big portion of us being gone really fell on me. Uh, I switched internet providers. I didn't have internet for a little while. It was kind of a, a back and forth ongoing thing, but I've got one gig fiber optic now. Whoa, one gig fiber optic. So internet is back. Casa Live is back. Trust me, Alex and, and Kristen, is, who isn't here today, they were both like, it's cool. We'll take a little break. Don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, Kristen, uh, if you're watching or uh, when you tune in later on to check out the stream and how it went, we all hope that you're feeling better. Uh, she's a little under the weather right now dealing with, uh, you know, all of that fun stuff. So we hope you get better soon. Uh, but we have Danielle Jones with us today. How you doing, Danielle? Oh, you know, hanging in there. Hanging in there. Well, usually I do a big, you know, hey, how are you? So I, I guess Danielle just keeps it real short and sweet for us. So I mean, you know, been been real busy in uh, After Effects video land for the past two months. But you have been, and we get to uh, we get to see the fruits of all that labor later oh, man. today. Oh yeah, man. excited. I hope everybody else is hyped. I think that's that's really why everybody else is here, right? Like that's that's why everybody, it's not for me and Alex. I mean, even though we we both have glorious beards going right now, Alex, compliments on the glorious beard you have rocking right now. But that but that's not it. It's really the truth about vaping video, episode four that we'll be showing today, live premiere for everybody. But Alex, hey, how are you? Hey, uh, doing all right. I got the uh, I got the house to myself this week, so I'm doing Ooh. fun things like having ice cream for breakfast. Nice. Was it like breakfasty ice cream, like a, like a maple ice cream, or was it? No, it was um, butter pecan, and uh, it's okay. keto keto friendly. Oh. Uh, oh, and I had good. it after I had my waffle, which itself looks like some sort of dessert. Um, <laughs> So it's it's like dessert dessert for breakfast, pretty much. Yeah, that's I what really, I do. that sounds amazing. I really Which, want dessert for breakfast. To be honest, it doesn't matter whether or not my wife is here. I that's pretty much what I eat. <laughs> adulting. I mean, yes, <laughs> yes, adulting. Uh, fun stuff. Well, um, my week was my week was okay. I was a little sick during the week and. Then I ran it. I discovered that I'm not impervious to poison ivy this week. Um, for a long time, I've been doing I've been doing landscape and working outside uh, for the better part of a decade now. And I've been in so many situations. Like I've I've actually like I've ripped full flower beds out full of poison ivy barehanded before. Never had an issue with it. Always felt like I was just immune, impervious. You know young and invincible uh -huh. uh, but as danielle jones reminded me earlier today that as we get older things change and we become less and less invincible and impervious to things uh but i've got ointment i've got ah. ointment now and i'm fighting back uh and it's doing well my poison ivy uh is is doing much better so 
that's where we're at. Uh, we're back. Internet is good. Uh, Danielle Jones has fun to show us today. Uh, Alex's beard is is looking fantastic. He had waffles and ice cream, and my poison ivy is going away. So, I think I think we're that we're, we're through all that. Yeah, that's all excellent news. Uh, I think that now we're through all that. It is time for a legislative rundown. Are you ready, Alex? All right, let's do this. All right, Alex, what do you have for us this week? Uh, basically, I mean, we're, we're catching up probably like the last, I don't know, month or so right now. What do you got for us? What do we need to know? What do we need to keep our eyes and ears on? So I will sort of skip over a lot of the things that we've been talking about uh, for multiple weeks before we kind of went on this uh, unplanned break. Um, so Maine still looking at LD 1550. That's a flavor ban. Um, and there, I think there were a couple of other things and, and you know, we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, but there are some things that have been introduced and uh, new issues to pay attention to. And I don't have a ton of graphics for these or any, honestly. Um, so you just get to look at the three of us while I talk about it. Take notes if you like, if you're playing the home game. Um, uh, so these are all sort of uh, things that have popped up over the past month and um, they are on our radar, but nothing's quite happening with them just yet. So uh, I will start in Oregon. Uh, found out about this last night. Um, this is in Washington County. Uh, there is a proposal at the county level that would restrict sales of flavored products, uh, including those products made with synthetic nicotine to adult only establishments. Uh, that's 21 plus. Um, and it would also prohibit discounts. Um, of course, at the same time, all manner of cigarettes will be allowed to be sold in convenience stores. Uh, and so this is something that, that we're opposed to. I understand that a lot of folks may be inclined to accept this as a compromise. And in a lot of places, this may be the only workable compromise, um, but there's no reason for consumers to bend over for this. And um, uh, so we'll, we will eventually be putting up a call to action for this, encouraging people to oppose it. Um, the introduction and first reading is on Tuesday, this is just introduction, just first reading, not a hearing yet. Um, and uh, I will, of course, be sharing the agenda. I think the agenda will eventually be linked in the description of the video. This is part of the links that I put together. Um, so again, that's Oregon in Washington, that's Washington County in Oregon, um, restrictions on flavored products and a discount ban. Uh, the next one, another county level uh, ordinance that I'm sure I'm going to screw up the name. I want to say it's Neil Lax, M-I-L-L-E-L-A-C-S, Neil Lax County in Minnesota. Um, this is a, a draft ordinance of a flavor ban, um, but it is moving to a public hearing. Uh, so September 7th, uh, I believe that's a Tuesday, uh, the regular county board meeting will be holding a public hearing uh, on this ordinance um, flavor ban. That's what it is, flavor ban. Uh, moving right along, Denver, Colorado, I think has been sort of in and out in discussions about banning flavors, um, continuing to discuss this and move forward. Um, I believe over the past two weeks, uh, two town halls were held. Uh, these are just town halls and they were put on by sponsors of the ordinance that would ban flavors. 
Um, I have heard varying reactions from that was horrible for tobacco control people and it was horrible for vapor products. So I, I'm not really sure. I haven't gone back to watch any of them. Um, I have a very limited amount of patience for some of this stuff. So um, that's the longer you do this, the more it hurts. Um, but uh, all of that to say, we are expecting introduction or a hearing or both uh, probably in September. Uh, so, you know, within the next few weeks here, uh, and we will have something up about that as well. Uh, the next city level issue here is in Columbia, Missouri, or Missouri. Um, Missouri. Oh, I used to live there. <laughs> well, your old hometown is looking to ban flavors. Um, they, uh, the city council received a report. It was a, a report on a flavor ban ordinance. Um, I will have a copy to that report. Um, and essentially it was the local board of health recommending more restrictions. So we're keeping an eye on that. It may or may not turn into a full blown ordinance to be heard and voted on, et cetera. Um, so again, Columbia, Missouri, uh, rounding out the, the group here, once again, back to the state of Michigan, um, the uh, State Department of Health has uh, sort of, I, I don't quite know how to say it. They haven't finalized the rule, but they are presenting something that I think you would consider a final rule to the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules or JCAR. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the, the document to read through and all of that, but well, the long and short of it is this is a flavor ban that the health department is proposing. Um, some folks who have been around for a couple of years may remember Michigan's, uh, I can't, I'm, I'm going to get this mixed up, but uh, this is something sort of at the behest of uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, I think in 2019, working through the Department of Health to propose this rule, and that was ultimately shot down by this same committee. Um, so there is a, a little bit of confidence here that, that the JCAR or the, this committee will uh, not, this isn't going to be easy to get through this committee. Uh, and so uh, shortly here, I think probably within the next couple of weeks, um, we will be issuing our call to action, encouraging people to contact members of the committee um, and also sharing your stories widely. If you're the type of person that likes to write letters to the editor uh, in Michigan, that would be a good idea as well, sharing your experience with vaping and why flavors are important. Um, and we are expecting uh, some sort of decision. There's, there are time limits as for how long JCAR has to you know, consider the rule and make a, a, a determination. Uh, and that determination can be reject, pass, or we need more information. Uh, and so we're expecting something along those lines to happen late September, early October. Uh, but again, probably within the next week or so, look for an engagement from CASA. Uh, and that pretty much ends the lightning round-esque reading of the legislative rundown. Any questions? Logan, you're muted, I think. I was muted. Uh, excellent <laughs> job breezing right through all of that. Um, for anybody uh, curious on catching up, we will have all the links uh, in case you missed all of that because Alex is so uh lightning fast um we will have all the links to everything uh in the descriptions and things like that we don't have an actual blog post this week again kristen is a little under the weather uh so for all of your calls to action obviously head right over to casa.org you can check out calls to action uh nationally locally 
uh, state by state, whatever is going on in your state. Alex, can we show the clicky map? You want to show everybody the clicky map? Yeah. Uh, Just in case we do have a clicky map over at kasa.org. Um, so if you, uh, you know, if you live in a state, all you got to do is click on the state that you reside in and you can see what is happening there. But yeah, we don't have a blog post this week, which is normally what we kind of link to directly in uh, descriptions for everything. There's the clicky map. Uh, so yeah, if you wanted to check out Michigan, if you live in Michigan, boom, there you go. Check out calls to action. So everything that Alex just ran through, uh, that's where it's all going to be. I just wanted to make sure that people had a, a place to go visually. They could see uh, where all of our calls to action are right now and moving forward always. Casa.org. Thanks, Danielle Jones, for oh, making yeah. it look so beautiful. Oh. But there we go. Legislative rundown. Lightning round legislative rundown. Love it. All right. Uh, is that is that all we've got this week then? This is we're ready to move swiftly forward let's do some takes all right are you ready i guess i'm ready here we go it's it's a it's it's a take two this week then yeah. we didn't give danielle homework yeah, we don't make right. guests do homework but we also didn't make a brand new one of these so it is a take two this week not a take three but i'm going to let uh i'm just gonna let alex continue having the floor right now and uh and he can he can run with the first take this week. What do we got? Cool. Well, I decided to you know whine and complain about um, the uh, uh, hold on. How do I get this back up here? Here we go. Uh, so we had 31 states AGs uh, send a letter to FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock, um, essentially demanding that FDA deny product applications for anything with flavors or high nicotine content, uh, and also sounding an alarm about nicotine pouches. Probably to me, I think one of the more humorous things, I mean, it's ridiculous. I, maybe humor isn't the right word. One of the most ridiculous claims in this is the potential of nicotine pouches to become the new jewel. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, sure, like, you know, they're discreet and, and you know, people, when I first encountered people discussing nicotine pouches, especially uh, like Zen and On, the really thin pouches. People describe them as, you know, like a nicotine patch for your gums, um, which is, in my experience, also kind of the level of like nicotine experience, the, the pharmacological effect of, of nicotine, the level of nicotine in pouches. Um, just remember, you know, oral nicotine gets into your bloodstream slower. It gets to your brain slower. It doesn't cause that same rush that you get from a cigarette uh and so it, it just it's a different experience for anybody who hasn't used them um but uh anyway you know nicotine pouches are a very important product and they're going to have to go through the same approval process that every other new nicotine product has to go to so it, if this is just kind of a ridiculous letter kind of telling fda like do the job that congress already told you to do and that you're in the process of doing um, but there's a lot of kind of, you know, sort of the typical wild claims that we hear from these folks, of course, leaning very hard on this idea that a generation of kids are being addicted to nicotine. Uh, and I, I sort of went through and, and just on my own, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm like fairly confident that I might have screwed this up. So anybody can jump in and give me like real numbers. But 
Um, I, I looked at, uh, let's see, where are we here? So this is uh, a digest of education statistics from the National Center for Education Statistics. Uh, and I, you know, I looked at, here's, here's the estimated number of uh, kids uh, in uh, high school. And this is what, uh, this is what the, the AGs refer to uh, in terms of youth use. Um, you know, something, what was it, in 2019 or 2020, uh, we saw 20, oh, sorry, 19.6% of uh, high school students using uh, nicotine products uh, once, at least once in the past 30 days. So that comes to 3.2, 3.3 million high school kids uh, out of, what do we got? Around 15 million, I think. Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, I had all these numbers. I think it was 16.8 like million in 2019. Out of all students enrolled, it's like 56.4 million kids enrolled in school uh, as of the fall of 2020, um, or that's the estimate. Um, so just going through the numbers here and, and, the, and what they cite here, there was another study that I, I believe was commissioned by the Truth Initiative that showed 38.6% of that 19.6% um, used uh, a tobacco product or, or I think it was e specifically e-cigarettes um, 20 days or more in the last 30. Uh, so that's about 1.2, 1.3 million. Uh, and then again, of that 19.6%, 22.5% are considered daily users, um, which overall, if you're looking at the population of high schoolers, about four, four and a half percent of high school students use vapor products daily. Uh, I'm not sure if that is totally correct, but it would be consistent with the dramatic decline in youth smoking that we've seen year over year, especially watching it go from, what was it, 9% down to 6%, mm. something along those lines. Uh, and we've also seen research showing that of that 4.4%, around 1% or less are using, are, are nicotine naive. They've never used any tobacco product. Um, and so, you know, again, one of the other things that I, I think will come up in our discussion later on is this the, the, the article that we saw from the 15 former presidents of SRNT, um, you know, basically calling for people to look at the youth use issue in balance, in context. Um, and so if we're talking about only 4.4% of teenagers using vapor products on a daily basis, that's not an epidemic. Um, it's below 5%. Uh, when we talk about reducing smoking rates, reducing smoking rates to below 5% is it, that's kind of the goal. Um, that was the point that I was actually, I was just going to ask you that when we talk about having, you know, a smoke-free society or a country being smoke-free, that end end game percentage is below 5%. Five. So yeah. we're talking about the youth below 5%. Th those are end game numbers. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, yeah. that's the goal. So hardly an epidemic. Uh, and of course, like any good piece of uh, propaganda that's written by a government official, uh, they quote, of course, the U.S. Surgeon General 
um, or, or refer to the U.S. Surgeon General uh, calling it an epidemic in 2019. Also worth noting, uh, that was the same Surgeon General that ridiculed people for wearing masks at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so not quite sure how much you want to trust his word on things. Um, I know that some people are trying to repair that damage, but good luck. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, you know, the gist of this is nothing new. It's not anything that we've seen, uh, not, that we haven't seen before from, from activists. Uh, just because attorneys general sign their name to it doesn't mean that it's actually coming from them. Um, and it's, it's really just uh, begging the FDA to not do science, right. uh, which is you know, counter to everything that all of us have been asking for for decades. Uh, we want these products to go through some sort of review uh, we want these products to be manufactured in sanitary facilities, uh, which you may not get when you push them onto an underground market. Um, and we want to have an adult conversation about substance use, addiction, uh, and the role that pretty much any drug plays in a person's life, whether they're 15 years old or 55 years old. Uh, and so unfortunately, these 31 attorneys general, which include um, a, an AG from Puerto Rico and an assistant AG from another state, um, uh, are, are urging the FDA to not fulfill the, their mandate. Um, so yeah, if you are interested in, in, I don't know, burning out your retinas, uh, the link to this letter will be available in the description below. Um, but yeah. So the other thing is, and this is what, it, that's sort of my just synopsis of the letter. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that we're seeing now is a bit of desperation from uh, the anti-tobacco group. Uh, and I think actually, as we go forward, it may, there, there may be some need to separate the activists from tobacco control, um, because there are a lot of people in tobacco control that are starting to question all of this stuff and, and actually come around to reason as evidenced by uh, the letter from the 15 former presidents of the SRNT. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a very activist driven talking point laden letter. Um, and I, I think I think what they're looking at here is the, the possibility of FDA actually doing their job and authorizing some products for market. I want to you know make sure everybody understands I'm just speculating. I don't actually have any insider knowledge about where FDA is. Nobody, I don't know anybody that does. Um, and so uh, it's just, you know, given our experience with this and all of the science that we've been promoting over the years, all of the experiences that we've been collecting over the years, from people who've successfully switched and FDA even defending the need for these products to stay on the market a little bit longer. Um, you know, that tends to tell me that um, we could see flavors other than tobacco approved, maybe not right away, um, but um, certainly if FDA is sticking to their guns about, you know, giving people, if they wanna ban menthol cigarettes and give people a place to land, then some sort of mint or menthol vapor product has to be approved. Um, I, again, that doesn't necessarily justify banning menthol cigarettes because people will find a way around that, which is potentially more dangerous. Um, and of course, all of the social justice issues that come along with targeting people who smoke menthol cigarettes at disproportionately higher rates. You can refer to our comment about the menthol ban uh, on our website. So um, yeah, that, I think that sums up my take. Yeah. Bravo. Just, the longer the longer all of this goes on, it feels like less of a scientific conversation and just more and more of a political one. 
that's what it that's what it's it just feels like it's solely political at this point you know yeah i i will say and i and i don't i don't want to be that guy who's like well i thought that before thinking that was cool um but it it has sort of always been like that and yeah. uh you know 2010 was you know new jersey banned vaping indoors and the justifications that the sort of um the the materials that were presented to the new jersey state assembly uh at one point they sort of pointed to some advertising that said you know using this product is just like smoking and so the the activists were sort of like see they said it's just like smoking so it's just like smoking like it that that's not a scientific conversation that's absolutely right, exactly and it's been that way since the very beginning. It's just now it, it seems like it's just more obvious. Like I, 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 I mean, people who have their heels dug in, they're totally they've they've been red pilled about everything. You know, they they look at something like this and support it and cheer it on. It's yeah, like stick it to the tobacco companies. But there are other people who are critical thinkers who who can spot this as you know, hyperbole, they're, they're exaggerating the numbers. This is written in a way to make it alarming. Um, and so I think, like, as you said, the longer this goes on, the more stuff we see like this, the more obvious it becomes to more people that this is politics, not science. Right. Yeah. All right. Excellent take, Alex. Excellent take. All right. I suppose, I suppose that means it's my turn. Because, because Danielle didn't get any homework. No. Lucky Danielle. No, I'm just kidding. I've been doing oh. my own homework. You want to make a video? No, I've made plenty, but yours are way better than mine ever were. Um, so uh, this week, my take is on a article from Mark Gunther. This was uh, published three days ago. Uh, the Great Vape Debate. Why do opponents of vaping want to suppress or dismiss science? We need to learn more not less about e-cigarettes. So uh, I'm not going to read this entire article, but I am going to kind of highlight a few things here just to kind of set the uh, set the stage. Uh, It says one one side, which I believe is a typo. We're going to go with on one side. Joanna Cohen, the Bloomberg professor of disease prevention at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at John Hopkins University. That's a mouthful. She argued that journals such as Tobacco Control, where she is an editor, are right in refusing to publish research sponsored by the industry. What's more, she said, those who work in the industry, including at e-cigarette company Juul, should be prohibited from attending scientific scientific conferences. I'm going to do my best to read today, you guys. I promise. Uh, Quote, scientists do not want their journals or their scientific societies to be used in the service of an industry that continues to perpetuate the most deadly disease epidemic of our time. Anybody want to chime in on that one? (laughs) Uh, On the other side, Kenneth Michael Cummings, a professor at the Medical University of South Carolina. Cummings, a veteran of the tobacco wars who has testified in court against cigarette companies, nevertheless does not believe that they should be barred from journals or scientific meetings. This is this is my favorite quote of this entire article. Science ought to be judged by its merits, period, Cummings said. Censorship is not the way to go. Companies that make reduced risk products like e-cigarettes should be part of the solution to the public health threat posed by combustible tobacco. Um, 
watching online, I thought Cummings got the better of the debate. Uh, obviously, they had a debate. Um, let's see here. This is a this is a email uh, sent from Cohen to Matt Myers of Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids. She said, "Good morning, Matt. I hope you and your family are well. I'm looking for an expert who can help me effectively respond to arguments." about not allowing tobacco company research in journals and not allowing tobacco company employees to attend scientific conferences. Those in favor of tobacco company publishing conference attendance are calling the above policies censorship, and they talk about open science, quite powerful on the face of it. I thought you may be aware of people or companies who are very good at crafting message framing that resonates well and don't work for tobacco companies, or if you can recommend who I might ask. So we're, we're reaching out to Matt Myers about how to, you know, phrase or, or effectively to, respond to arguments. Yeah. How to justify your opinion. Yeah. Ju yes, exactly. Justifying scientific censorship, you know? Like, uh, I know this is right and this is what but we should be doing, but do you have anyone who's smart enough to come up with a reason why it sounds like why yeah. it should be that can we, way? Can we, yeah. Can we, can we, can we get some words in here to make it to justify it? Yeah. That's exactly what this is. And he goes on to say, do you see the problem here? Um, basically that's what this comes down to. This comes down to scientific censorship. Again, I'm not going to read this entire article. Uh, it will be linked. So if you do want to go read this whole article, it's really not super long, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go through the entire thing. This comes down to scientific censorship. Uh, and, you know, here at CASA, we, we've talked about this a number of times. Uh, and I believe Alex and I and Kristen have kind of touched base on this topic a few times during the show. But do we do we want scientific censorship just because of where that science comes from? Or should we accept all science and judge it based on its merits? How good the, the quality of the science is? Whether it's I always I always say this word wrong, replicat replicatable. I can't say that word, but whether yeah, there you go. Whether you well whether it can be replicated, whether it's quality science, whether it's ethical science, uh, or is it just solely based on conflicts of interest? Conflicts of interest are important to know. We should know where science is coming from, where people are getting their funding from, where those conflicts of interest rest. But quality science, good science, should be welcomed with open arms to any debate, whether we're talking about uh, e-cigarettes, you know, whether we're talking about drugs, whether we're talking about uh, COVID-19, whatever the case may be, quality science is important in order for us to expand our knowledge and move forward, whether that comes from tobacco companies or wherever. Um, and I guess that's the question I will pose to kind of the rest of the panel, because that's that's my take is is that we should judge science based on its merits. Uh, and I will uh, I guess I'll pose that same question. Should we should we censor science based on things like conflict of interest alone? Absolutely not. I'll ju I'll jump in here. No, there is actually a theory out there that industry science, especially in today's age, is more rigorously researched and done because industry knows that they will be under a much higher level of scrutiny than, you know, let's say researchers from a public health university or something like that. So I would actually argue, I agree with you, science should be judged on the merits. It is important to know who has produced the science, where the funding comes from, if there are any conflicts of interest as a part of the larger context when looking at it, because sometimes those things matter. 
but also the methodology, if it's, you know, if it's flawed, you've got potentially a bad study, but if methodology is good, if they're honest about the limitations, if it's good science, then no, it absolutely doesn't matter. And I would say that it is absolutely ridiculous to say that industry shouldn't be involved in conferences or shouldn't have studies published because that is in fact the real world result of science, right? Companies putting out products that people on the planet use. That's who you want to have the science. That's who you want to be educated. That's who you want to be looking into this. You know, if you've got a company putting out products and they're not allowed to have the latest science, who's to say they're not going to be making their product, you know, more safe or more effective or whatever it is. I mean, that's just, that's like saying pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be allowed to attend science conferences because they're for profit. So they shouldn't have the latest science yet. It's integral to what they're producing. It just makes no sense to me, you know? Right. There can be right. good science that comes from industry. There can be bad science that comes from industry. There can be good science that comes from reputable organizations like researchers or the CDC. And there can also be bad science that comes from them as well. It's not, you know, this one's good and this one's bad. Both sides can have both types. So I think the science itself is the most important thing. Yeah. And like we discussed earlier, some of the some of the, the bigger things to really and me and Danielle agreed on this. We, we talked about this before the show uh, isn't not necessarily conflicts of interest, but limitations, methodology. Those are the things that we should really concern ourselves with when it comes to research. And again, conflicts of interest, things like that are important to know. We should absolutely have that available to us, but they are not the end all be all like, you know, where we should decide whether or not a, a research paper is good. Alex, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, obviously a few. I think we might have discussed this on a previous uh, podcast. I was actually, I attended that seminar with uh, Michael Cummings and Joanna Cohen, um, or Joanne Cohen, um, and uh, certainly had some thoughts about it. And I think this this factored into, or this featured in our conversation about whether or not uh, industry uh, should be allowed to participate in as far as producing science. Um, so the answer is unequivocally yes. The FDA requires these studies to be done. They require the, the manufacturers to pay for these studies. Uh, and as a consumer, you know, if I can see that from my own eyes, I mean, even though I I don't have the level of skill as as uh, as other scientists and researchers might have, uh, I, I still like having the opportunity to review it for myself. Um, and uh, the other thing that that really bothers me is. I don't, I don't know why more researchers and scientists aren't sort of mortally offended by this behavior of censoring, of, of sort of determining what they are allowed to see. Um, right. if, if I'm a scientist, well, it's science. I mean, it's, it's, it's about inquiry. It's about learning. And I, 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 I don't think uh, that the editors of a journal are in any position to tell me what I can and can't read. Um, it's all, it, it, I think it's, it's very insulting to someone's intelligence. Basically, yeah. the editors of that journal or of journals that exclude uh, research being done by certain industries um, are, are basically, they don't have any confidence in their readers to, to think critically and make up their own minds and assess the science on their own. Oh, welcome to <laughs> academia. Yeah. yeah. Also, which, yeah, that's a, probably why I dropped out of college because I'm just sick of everybody's crappy attitude. Um, the other <laughs> thing is, um, I don't know what the point of conflicts of interest, declaring conflicts of interest is, 
if that's simply being used to exclude certain authors. Right. Um, if you know, I understand that there have been uh, incidents and, and recent incidents where you have authors on a particular article that uh, failed to disclose uh, past funding from tobacco companies, um, which is something, of course, I feel that can be remedied very easily uh, with some sort of editorial note. Um, if, if you are so concerned that someone will sort of read two thirds of the way through, uh, I guess the abstract, uh, which is what most of us have access to, um, unless you use Sci-Hub, <clears throat> um, and, and then they will be somehow possessed by the devil and not able to think for themselves, then put that disclosure at, at the top. Uh, you know, this, this person was uh, received a, a, an unrestricted grant to do science on behalf of tobacco companies. Fine, whatever. 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago or yesterday. I don't care when they got the money. If, right. if they do the science, is it science? Is it, is right. it science or is it propaganda? Um, and, and yeah, I think just to echo uh, the comment by Mike Cummings, I, I think that you, you either read or I just have it stuck in my head, was, you know, it wasn't the lack of access to tobacco company research that got public health into trouble in the first place going all the way back to light and low tar cigarettes. Uh, that the research around light and low tar cigarettes was very limited. And of course, tobacco companies showed what they wanted to show. Uh, it was what public health officials didn't see that led to the problem of public health officials saying, oh yeah, light, low tar cigarettes are better than regular cigarettes, which they're not. Um, so yeah, I, 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 anybody who's doing research in science, I think, should be outraged at the fact that, you know, uh, journal editors are keeping certain information from them. Uh, and I, and I, I would, you know, as much as it is possible, I would love to see researchers pouring over, uh, you know, PMTA applications, which are actually very difficult to get a hold of. And when you do get them, uh, they are heavily redacted uh, for, you know, protecting trade secret and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of the research, we absolutely need that out in the open. I don't care if tobacco companies do it or not. Um, FDA is reviewing it. I want the other researchers to do, to re review it, um, replicate it. Let's confirm this stuff. We all want to know what the safer alternatives to smoking are. We all want better strategies to reduce the early death and disease attributable to smoking. Keeping people in the dark isn't helping that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you. I think you just. Uh, I think you just said it best. So. So that's it. Those are our takes this week. Are you uh, are you ready, Danielle? Are you prepared? Oh, I just I'm sweating bullets in this office <laughs> right now. I don't know if anybody has noticed, but I'm dying in this office right now. Um, but Danielle, if you're ready, then it is time for this week's deep dive. This week's deep dive is really just brought to all of us by this wonderful human being right here, Miss Danielle Jones. What are we? Uh, what are we about to see, Danielle? You are about to see episode four, which, by the way, I only make episodes every I don't know four two years. I'm not a good YouTuber, um, but I've been working on this one uh, for the last two months. I started at the end of June. Uh, and it was based on things that were happening, uh, as you will see in the video, that I think a lot of people 
in our community and in our space are not really paying attention to in terms of it's about Jewel. Uh, and I think that there is a potential for these events to affect us, um, but not a lot of people are aware of that. So I decided to do a video explaining that. It did take two months. Um, it was a hardcore labor of love, uh, but it's it's done. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited for people to see it. Also, sorry, not sorry that I only make videos every like two years. So <laughs> they're a lot of work, you guys. They're well worth the wait. I am prepared to wait until 2024 or 2025 even for the next. No, I don't want to wait that long. Either way, this is fantastic. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm ready to hit this button. Can I hit I'm, this button? I think, yeah, in chat, if there's any audio issues or anything, let us know right yeah, away. Yeah, please let us know right right away. We've done um, testing. This should work properly uh, for the live premiere. All right. Is everybody ready? Yes. Truth About Vaping, episode four. Here we go. I'm going to mute everybody. Danielle's muted officially. Alex is officially muted. settled a lawsuit with the state of North Most of you have probably seen or heard that e-cigarette maker Juul just settled a lawsuit with the state of North Carolina for $40 million. North Carolina filed their suit in May of 2019, and as of the making of this video, there are currently 14 other attorneys general suing Juul, as well as thousands of lawsuits across the country, with plaintiffs ranging from individuals, to cities and counties, to school districts, to Native American tribes. There are so many lawsuits, it's hard to keep track, so the courts consolidated many of them into an MDL docket, or multi-district litigation, under one judge in San Francisco. The majority of the cases are filed by individuals, but the second largest group of plaintiffs comes from school districts. The MDL lists 155 school districts from states all over the country. Interestingly, some of these schools don't even track how many of the students vape, if they use jewels, or what damages they should claim. It is complicated formula, so um, it's my understanding from the law firms that they, uh, with respect to Juul, because they are the largest manufacturer of e-cigarettes, they represent a certain percentage, I'm just guessing, say 80% of the manufacturing of e-cigarettes. And so our damages allegedly would be calculated based on 80% of our infractions. Um, it, it's hard to also track internally, because like you said, we don't have a system in we don't, first of all, we don't track between traditional tobacco products and e-cigarettes. Um, and not only that, but we also don't track like, to the manufacturer of each of the, of the cigarettes, of the e-cigarettes. So, yes, that's part of the, um, the formula. Yet they've been persuaded to sue Juul by powerful litigation attorneys who stand to make lots of money in cases like these. Of the 155 school districts, over 90% of the schools are represented by just six attorneys. By all accounts, it appears that everyone sees suing Juul as easy money, including anti-vaping advocates. In a recent panel from the Public Health Law Center, tobacco control activists reflected on the master settlement agreement reached in 1998 and how that could be relevant today. I guess it's my hope that there is a, a future settlement agreement with um, the e-cigarette industry as a whole, if not just specific companies. If you're wondering how this relates to the Juul lawsuits, let's back up for a moment. 
Beginning in the 1950s, there were decades of unsuccessful lawsuits against tobacco companies. In the 1990s, state's attorneys general tried a new tactic and began suing tobacco companies to recover Medicaid and other health-related costs, which proved successful. After individually settling with four states, the tobacco companies eventually agreed to one large settlement that would cover the remaining 46 states, known as the Master Settlement Agreement, or MSA. The MSA is still the single largest civil litigation settlement in U.S. history because it requires the participating tobacco companies to pay the states a portion of their revenue every year, forever. As of 2020, tobacco companies have already paid over $160 billion. These mandatory MSA payments resulted in an increase in cigarette prices, and through the MSA, tobacco companies agreed to marketing and advertising restrictions, releasing millions of internal documents, and providing initial funding for what is now the Truth Initiative, one of the largest and most active anti-tobacco organizations in the country. The year after the MSA was signed, the federal government sued the tobacco companies under a civil RICO statute. RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations and was an act passed in the U.S. which allowed for more severe criminal and civil penalties for crimes committed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. The government ultimately won this case, which required the tobacco companies to, among other things, issue corrective statements about the health effects of smoking. The MSA money tobacco companies pay is supposed to be used to combat smoking and offset increased health costs. But as many tobacco control activists will tell you, it's largely not. States typically use the money for their general fund on things like shipping docks, golf courses, and jails. Tobacco control activists spend a significant portion of their time lobbying state governments to give the money to them, but they're not as successful as they'd like. Since the advent of vaping, these activists have been suggesting that vapor companies should also be forced into a similar type of settlement, perhaps an MSA 2.0, likely due to the dwindling funds available to them as smoking continues to decline in the United States. If they could require vapor companies to pay and funnel some or all of that money to themselves, they'd have a secure funding stream for their organizations and jobs. I would uh, advocate for an approach like the MSA. Yeah, as, as I said before, you know, we have been able to take on uh, e-cigarettes. We're, we're lucky, but um, uh, the way the MSA is constructed, the main uh, money coming from it is gone, and money isn't coming from the e-cigarette um, flow. So we'll be able to do it for a little while, but I, you know, without new funds, um, that's work that's going to be difficult to continue. The avalanche of lawsuits drowning Jewel, coupled with the recent ruling by the San Francisco judge that plaintiffs can move forward with civil RICO allegations, is starting to look very familiar. The RICO claims will make a settlement much more likely, since if Jewel loses, the amount of money they pay in damages is tripled, per the RICO statute. Like with the MSA, tobacco control activists know that the best possible outcome for them involves not just Jewel settling, but other vape manufacturers as well. Some of the elements, if you could come up with sufficient incentives to get new players in the market to become participating manufacturers, which has been one of the uh, barriers in the cigarette market. Um, you know, the, the, the functions of the MSA uh, are, would be really good to apply to e-cigarettes. Why would other vape companies sign on to a settlement when they weren't being sued? To answer that question, let's look back at the original MSA. The MSA was an agreement between 46 U.S. states and initially only four tobacco companies. These companies had to raise the price of their cigarettes to compensate for the loss of money, and they argued that this would give their competitors an unfair advantage in the market. 
So the MSA was written with a clause that allowed tobacco companies to give the states less money if they lost market share to cheaper competitors. This created a strong incentive for the states to help make sure that didn't happen, so they were encouraged to pass legislation requiring any tobacco company who wanted to sell in their state to either join the MSA or make payments to the states resulting in higher cigarette prices, effectively leveling the playing field. As further incentive to join, these subsequent tobacco companies only had to pay the states if their market share increased beyond a preset level. 41 additional tobacco companies have since signed on to the MSA. Encouraging or extorting additional tobacco companies into joining the MSA was a win-win for both sides. The original four tobacco companies wouldn't have an unfair disadvantage in the marketplace, and the states would receive the highest payments possible and be able to restrict the activities of as many tobacco companies as possible. There's so much litigation against Juul right now from individuals, from states, from tribes, and so it certainly seems like um, it's creating a situation where a larger settlement might be on people's minds. Many people are anticipating that Juul will receive an approved pre-market tobacco product application, or PMTA, from the FDA this fall, which would permit them to continue selling their products legally in the U.S. It is not outside the realm of possibility that Juul would be open to signing an MSA 2.0 to make this litigation go away and avoid RICO charges. If tobacco control activists were able to insert themselves into these negotiations, just like Matt Myers of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids did with the original MSA, they may try to engineer a way to pay themselves. Tobacco control activists have already produced materials suggesting that the Truth Initiative is the organization that should receive a large portion of any settlement money, even though most of these lawsuits are still in the early stages. So what does the future of vaping look like? If there is an MSA 2.0 for vapor products, small businesses, if they could even afford to file a PMTA and are approved, will likely be shut out of the market unless they can also afford to sign on to the settlement. The PMTA process, coupled with an MSA 2.0, would skyrocket the price of whatever products legally remain on the market, offering an even larger incentive for a thriving underground market. Everyone involved in these lawsuits, and even those who aren't, seem to have their eyes on only one prize, money. There is no consideration of the fact that vapor products are helping people quit smoking, and that an MSA 2.0 would ultimately increase prices and restrict information about less harmful alternatives to smoking, hurting public health. The secret, hiding in plain sight, is that none of this is about public health. It's about feeding the tobacco control industrial complex. Claps. There you go. That's two months of my life. Excellent. Two months in 10 minutes. Beautiful. Well done. First of all, compliments to the chef. Uh, that was just, that it's so, it's so good. I've watched it like four times now, but it's so good. <laughs> um, just wow. <laughs> just wow. Um, my, my first question is, I guess, how do I want to phrase? I should have thought this out first. Alex, do you have a question? Because I'm still trying to phrase it correctly in my mind. Or do you have comments out of the gate? Yeah, I, I don't have a question, but more mostly the comment because, uh, well, that just it's that 80% rule that they have about how like Jewel has 80% of the market share, and so 80% of the uh, 
the the, the vaping infractions in schools are just magically attributed to Juul. Yep. Um, you know, people have probably seen. I know uh, Stefan Didak has uh, posted pictures, and other I think other people have posted pictures of like you know there's shots of like the desk of the the school principal, and there's like a bunch of vapor stuff, and like you can pick out what's cannabis, and you can pick out what's Juul, and then like everything else is something different. Um, it's just, it's ridiculous. Uh, courtrooms and, you know, as, as, as we noted when I was talking about the AG's letter, um, you know, they reference science and math, uh, but it really has no bearing on reality in a courtroom. No, I mean, you saw that woman of the school board say they don't even track this information. They yeah, have yeah. no data as to whether or not their students are even jeweling. Yet, they're going to go ahead and sue Jewel and, and try to collect money. Yeah, I mean, and whenever you see it's the the uh, the e-cigarettes, the the vapes, all that laid out on the principal's desk. This is standard like drug propaganda, drug bust, photo op opportunity. It's the same thing. Instead of little baggies and five twenties fanned out in front of them, you know, it's it's two packs of jewel pods and a bunch of e-liquid bottles. My favorite. And I always question it. My favorite, though, in those photo ops are the unopened e-liquid boxes. When I'm like, did they, like, what teenager or or whoever doesn't immediately, you know, open it up, discard the box, you know, and throw it in their bag or their pocket or whatever. It's like, do we just need to fill that corner of the desk before we took the photo? Was that what happened here? Well, my, my, my alternate explanation for that was that it's probably because they just bought it from another student. They just like right in school, yeah. To take it out of the box, <laughs> didn't have time. Damn. Well, either way, I always question it because I'm always like, really? Like the cellophane on my cigarette pack was never there when it got confiscated from me. You know, <laughs> like that was always long gone. Um, actually, I do want to uh, just really quickly. I've seen some comments. There were some people who had to cut away, and a couple folks who might have joined late. Um, this video will be available. Obviously, you can go back and watch this podcast, but it is on Danielle's YouTube channel, which is the truth about vaping. So it, I'm launching it Monday. So Monday okay. morning is when the video is actually going to go live. I greatly encourage you to share it from that particular link specifically. Please watch it. It helps my analytics and gets me recommended in the YouTube algorithms. Um, but yeah, my actual video will be um, published Monday morning. This is like the early sneak peek. Um, so if you missed it, you can rewatch it on this replay or you can wait until Monday uh, and see it yeah. on my channel. And I'm in chat with my channel, so it's easy for you to subscribe. I'll say something right now. Hi. So click that subscribe link. I did see yeah, a question I, I'm gonna uh, encourage from Ian everybody. Thomas. Ian Thomas, I will find your question, but I am going to encourage everybody to just like take two seconds right now and just go subscribe to the Truth About Vaping uh, YouTube channel. We'll take two seconds while I find Ian's comment here. Ian, Ian, where are you? Where are you, Ian? He was a YouTube comment um, and asked a good question that I kind of want to clarify for people because I think I saw another question. Um, he said, wasn't MSA to settle for medical costs to the states due to smoking? Well, yes. I did see this while we were um, watching. How in the hell does that apply there to vaping? So here's one thing that I want to make really clear for everybody. The MSA is, in effect, a settlement for lawsuits. It is not mm -hmm. a law. It is not a congressional bill. 
It is nothing like that. It is an agreement between several parties for what people, these parties are willing to do for each other. Um, and so because this kind of settlement comes from lawsuits, the lawsuits can be about anything, right? And so people are suing Jewel for all kinds of things. There's tons of personal injury cases, people claiming that you know, bad things happened to them after using a jewel or that they became addicted because they used a jewel. So there's a ton of individual personal injury cases. Um, and then there's also the school districts, like I said, the Native American tribes, and they're suing based on their like supposed, you know, vaping infractions to students and things like that. So a settlement can come from a lawsuit suing about anything. You know what I mean? It doesn't, they don't have to prove medical damages like the states did with smoking before it can be any lawsuit for any reason that results in a settlement and that's how this can happen essentially um and like i said it could wind up having far-reaching consequences for the rest of the industry because there is incentive for if jewel were to doing this to, for jewel and for the tobacco control people to get more people to voluntarily sign on to this settlement, even though they weren't being sued, because then they can do things that by congressional law or bill, they cannot do. So for example, the MSA limited advertising and marketing on the tobacco companies, a law or a bill could not have done that. They could not have passed that through Congress because that would violate the company's first amendment rights. But it could be accomplished in a settlement because essentially cigarette companies voluntarily agreed to do that. Um, and so there are things that can get done in settlement contracts that cannot be done by law. And that's why the tobacco control activists like them so much. Um, and that can be the danger in something like this, because other tobacco companies who weren't sued were essentially kind of blackmailed in a way to sign on to this agreement. Otherwise, you know, the states would charge them money anyway, um, or other things of that nature. So that's how this can kind of snowball out of control. Like, even though these are lawsuits against Jewel, there is a potential for it to have far reaching consequences outside, depending on what happens. I, I was that I, I sort of had a question about that. And I, I, I sort of questioned my own experience around the time that the MSA came into effect. Um, cause that was, you know, mid nineties, I was full blown two pack a day, well, sometimes three pack a day smoker. Um, but what did, if you know, um, how did the MSA settlement and this kind of requirement or, or not really the bullying to get other companies to sign on to it? Um, did that have any effect on the variety of cigarettes that were available not to my knowledge, not really, because so many other companies signed on to it, essentially. Um, and so what they did, there's this really long clause in the MSA um, that, like I said in the video, it allows, you know, because the four tobacco companies that were sued and they've since, you know, kind of recombined. So it's a little Brown and Williamson, I think, is no longer a thing anymore. They were initially part of the the initial lawsuit um, as Reynolds. Um, Philip Morris, you know, all of these guys eat each other and, you know, marry and create different subsidiaries and whatnot. But essentially, they themselves had about 97% of the market share domestically anyway. Um, and so their concern about this um, was that if they had to up their cigarette prices, that 97% of the market that they already had 
would lower because everybody would buy the cheaper cigarettes, right? Like that's, that's the idea. And so this was mostly, this was basically price fixing in a way, or like, uh, it was essentially like competitor, you know, fixing to make sure that they maintain that market share, because that's where most of that money comes from is those initial four, you know, guys. So my understanding is that it didn't really have a huge effect on, um, availability, because they are the big ones anyway, those four initial guys, and everybody else, you know, the 41 other companies um, agreed to to the same thing. So they were still allowed to to sell in the state. If that did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, as I'm sort of remembering that period of time, I mean, it's really between, you know, 96 until 2009, 2010. Um, I remember there were like really, like really, really cheap brands of cigarettes like Basic and Sundance. I, well, I haven't bought cigarettes in eight years now. Is that right? Yeah, eight years. Uh, so I don't really know. And even, you know, while I was smoking in the last kind of 10 years there, I wasn't really interested in the, the cheap cigarettes. Um, but I don't remember seeing them so much. So I was sort of curious, but, you know, which was it, the Tobacco Control Act or the MSA that knocked out those smaller companies? It could have been either one. Like I said, I'm sure there may have been a few smaller companies that didn't want to sign on to the MSA or pay the state. So they may have stopped distributing in the U.S. market, especially if it wasn't a huge market for them uh, or something of that nature. But yeah, the way that they wrote this this clause and this um, the pages that I flipped through in the video is this thing called uh, the model statute in the MSA. And it is essentially a pre-written law that states they weren't required, but they were strongly encouraged to pass this piece of legislation that was pre-written for them. Like, just enter your state's name and pass this law. Um, and that's what said, like, any co tobacco company that wants to sell in here that isn't one of the four that we sued already has to either also agree voluntarily to the MSA or we're going to create a separate little thing where they have to pay us anyway. And we put it into this weird fund where we reserve the funds for in the event that we decide to sue them later too. Like it was this very bizarre thing for possible future litigation that didn't even exist yet, but would essentially have the same effect of requiring them to pay the states. And so these companies were like, well, I either have to pay that or I could sign on to the MSA. And the bonus, there was like a 90 day bonus where if you sign on in the first 90 days, you <laughs> won't have to pay any additional, you know, you won't have to pay the states unless your market share increases above your current, you know, 90s level. Like it was crazy the way that they did this. And it was all to essentially ensure that these four companies who were sued and who were going to pay the states would maintain their market share. I mean, it, it's it's just right. a little because they're, they're going to pay in perpetuity. We want these yeah. four yeah. to uh, to remain, you know, the top dogs who are going to keep paying us forever. Right. And that's kind of going to tie, I guess, into my it's not so much a question, but I guess a, an observation where we have uh, you know, we have activists who are simultaneously, uh, you know, lobbying and, and things to get the FDA to deny PMTAs, all this sort of stuff, Why, and essentially trying to shut down the vapor industry, and then simultaneously trying to work on this MSA 2.0. If, if you shut down the industry, you're not going to get an MSA, you're not going to get money. Correct. So th this is this is kind of one of those situations, just just like with the MSA, where like, yeah, we're gonna fight them, but we also need them. 
It's an interesting, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't definitively tell you what, why they're doing this. Right. Like that's just kind of as an observation, it's like, but I can speculate. Right. And so to your answer, the weird thing about this, right. Is that creating the MSA essentially made everybody reliant on cigarette sales, right. Right. For funding, for all of this stuff. And so you're like, it's like, you're like, you're evil, but I need you around because you pay me, you right, know? And right. it's kind of the same thing that they're trying to create with, with e-cigarettes, right? With the vapor industry. If, if this is truly what they want, this MSA 2.0, which it sounds like they do, they do need, for example, Juul to get a PMTA, right? And other vape manufacturers to get a PMTA. Otherwise, this is moot. So it is bizarre. It would seem bizarre that they are sending all these letters and saying, no, don't give them a PMTA, you know, and don't do this. But on the other hand, they also really want to just like, do you think this is like the plan B, like the fallback? Like we're going to keep fighting, but yeah, I think if, it's, a, it's a play both sides situation, right? right like like try to get a way. We're going to try to come out victorious. But also, here. right. If we can't get it banned, then we want the money, right? right. Like or, if we can't have it our way, we're going to have it our way. Right. Or who knows? They It might even be, you know, more ridiculous than that. And they're just doing all of these letters and pressuring the, the FDA as like a PR stunt. Like, look at us. We look like we're trying to save the children, but really pass it. We want the money. Like, I don't know which it is, um, you know, but. I, the the uh, evidence probably is a good there, mix of so, all like, of that. Like it all, it all just sounds like it works in their favor. So you could kind of just, you could kind of just close your eyes and throw a dart at it, right? And it and it works in their favor. That's that's the end goal, right? Like that's what a strategy create create a situation where you can't lose. It's a win. Yeah, it's a win win either way, yeah. right? Well, I mean, for everybody except for people who smoke. Right, right, for tobacco Situation control for people who smoke. and states, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. lose. You're going to lose. The but... public, public health loses. The real, you know, right. and that was yeah. my point at the end of the video is that, you know, all of this crying and marketing and complaining that they do, you know, in public, these campaigns is about, and I feel like I kind of coined this term, you know, feeding the tobacco control industrial complex, Right? That's exactly like, what it is. Because this is a business, right? These are yeah. organizations with employees and, you know, they need funding. This is a business for them. And if smoking and all nicotine products were just to magically vanish tomorrow, they I mean, it is true that they would be out of jobs, right? They'd have nothing else to do. And so there is an element of like an economy here that I think right. even tobacco controllers today who are seeing the light and who are, you know, being more receptive to vaping are still kind of loath to admit that this is in fact a bit of an industry in and of itself. I understand mm-hmm. that they, they feel that it's pure and that it's righteous and all of this stuff, but at the bottom line, there are, there's economics to this. Um, and I think that that needs to be recognized as well. Yeah. So righteous getting to heaven on the backs of, you know, cancer patients and uh, anyways. Um, and I did want to, you know, kind of highlight, like I, I, I couldn't, I didn't get the name of the individual who said it, but he even clearly states like that money from the MSA is kind of drying up as we see, you know, percentage of people in this country who, who smoke dropping, plummeting rapidly since the adoption of, of e-cigarettes and safer alternatives, that money is dwindling. So that was David, that new source, they need that new revenue. Like you said, these people have jobs They you know, this is their, their income. Right. Where does that money come from? Well, we have a, we have a, a brand new category to target here, 
which just so happens, thanks to FDA, to also be a tobacco product uh, to target, to, to ride on the, the cowtails of. Yeah, so that was David Dobbins of the Truth Initiative. Hopefully yeah. everybody saw that. So that's Truth, right? Truth Orange. Um, and one of the things that sometimes people get a little wrong or confused about. So the Truth Initiative, when it initially came into being, was actually called the American Legacy Foundation. That foundation was funded initially, initially uh, by the MSA money. So there was a clause in the MSA that I think it was the first, I don't know, three to five years, uh, the tobacco company, the MSA money would fund that organization. They morphed into the Truth Initiative after they had their Truth campaign that became really popular. And they do not currently receive MSA money or tobacco money, but they were initially started with it. Um, I think I read somewhere that they actually invested some of that money, that initial funding from the MSA really well in like the stock market and stuff. And so they've been able to like continue their work based on, you know, some of that investment income and stuff like that. And also I'm sure they get donations like any other nonprofit does. Um, but yeah, that was the truth guy talking. I just want to make sure everybody yeah. knows where that, that came from. That is the guy from truth initiative. Just spelling it right out there, you know, right. Hey, we're, you know. we're running out of money. So you know, you know, it uh, like a really good idea. There's yeah. no money coming from the e-cigarette flow. Uh, yeah. So we need it, you know, and I'm just, oh, yeah. man. Okay. Yeah. Look at all that money sitting over there. We're just going to we're just going to try to get some of that. Yeah. I mean. <sighs> well, excellent job. Alex, you look like you have something to add here. I was just going to say, wow. Wow. What a dilly of a pickle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, it just, you, I don't know. It'll never cease to amaze me how, you know, Matt Myers' campaign for tobacco-free kids, this this whole situation where really, like, even though it's all based on bad, just bullshit, really, right? How smart and, like, thought out that situation is to, to, to just trying to force that win-win right like you either you either shut your opponents down or you win by you know extorting money from them like I how mean, do we you, do that if you, oper- if you <laughs> how, operate- how do we do that can we yeah. can we take some of that playbook but do so it I, like better and the right look, way with here's you know. here's here's the deal we've we've already won that's the thing yes. that i think a lot of these folks i mean if we set our 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 goals too high, then yeah, we're on the losing side of this because we're seeing people have these products taken away from them. Uh, they're losing access to the products and the information about safer alternatives. And ultimately that means that fewer people are trying to quit. And so that's, that is really, that is ultimately the big loss here for all, for everybody involved. Um, but from the, the vaping side of things, we've already won because vaping democratized nicotine. These products will continue to be manufactured if, if the industry or the community, really, if the community get, has to go back to making small batches of e-liquids in their homes, uh, you have people who are very talented at machining things, uh, the mods will continue to be made, they'll continue to be ordered from China, the liquids will continue to be made, all of these things will still happen, we just won't get the benefit on a large enough scale. So it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this is where the whole harm reduction thing comes into this. Harm reduction works because you have to start by acknowledging that people are doing these things. 
Sure. And I mean, if you look back at the history of we're, we're just never going to be in a position of shutting that down. And again, this, you know, this gets into the whole like, you know, what is an acceptable level of youth experimentation, youth use, et cetera? Well, it's not so much really of what is an acceptable level. It's what is the level and what is the level in spite of all of these coercive strategies that people have tried over the decades and centuries? What is the level? Um, and, and that is never going to be zero. So sure. I, I think, you know, we can either win by walking through the blood, which is what this is, the, this group of lawyers is trying to put on us, or we can, we can all walk down the path together and work cooperatively to make sure that people have access to quality information and high quality products that aren't going to kill you in your fifties or sixties. Yeah. And, and I was, I was going to highlight the, like you said, you know, harm reduction. If you look at the history of syringe exchanges, they started out of the trunks of people's cars, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in parking lots and alleys. And, and still today, there are people that do outreach programs where they, they literally go out to the field um, and set up, you know, um, syringe well, exchange right. spots, uh, whether they're handing out, you know, clean needles or other uh, drug supplies, cookers, uh, things like that, uh, first aid, all that kind of stuff. And that's where it started. And we've gotten to a place now where in a lot of places, uh, syringe exchange programs are just part of part of the the medical normalcy. I don't know what word to use there, but, you know, it's just part of part of everything else. Um, so, yeah, I guess like that's the ultimate goal, right, is to have this just become the norm, you know. Uh, that they're they're legal, they're available to adults. Harm reduction. You can quit smoking this way. That's that's what we. That's the ultimate goal. We're we're we're, we're like we were moving towards that. We're kind of falling back to the the trunk of the car thing, but hopefully we can we can get back to you know getting back to that being a, a, a normal, the norm. I guess we'll say. And I would say that really ties into, you know, this big paper that we saw come out this week, this week, right, with the 15 former presidents of the um, Nicotine Society and that sort of thing. I, I think that, you know, like Alex said earlier in the broadcast, nobody knows for sure what the FDA is going to do. Like, I'm just going to put that out there. We have no insider knowledge, but there is a lot of speculation that FDA is going to potentially grant something right and jewel is at the head of the pack so perhaps it's going to be them um but there's sort of this you know something in the air that says that perhaps they're going to to get a pmta which would you know work nicely into this little you know msa type scheme that is currently being developed um and that and that there are tobacco controllers you know out there who think that this is a good idea for, you know, Juul to be given a PMTA, that it should be, you know, known that e-cigarettes are, you know, good for public health, right? Um, and so I think that was interesting too. You know, one could speculate as to whether or not, you know, these these tobacco controllers were potentially giving FDA some like cover or some, you know, um, good PR to then go forth and, you know, approve a couple vaping PMTAs or something saying, look, you know, other people, you know, we're not just out here by ourselves. The only ones saying that actually vaping's not terrible. You know, I don't know what, if you guys have thoughts about that, but. Well, I mean, we have, well, globally, there are a number of institutions uh, that also echo the same same sentiments. 
Yeah, I think um, you know if 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 timing is a factor in that theory, um, I, I don't think that that necessarily holds in terms of like giving the FDA cover. Um, I, I think, to be honest, I think that this this letter, this report from from the 15 former presidents of SRNT, the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, um, uh, uh, I think it's it's really speaking at the rest of the tobacco control community, or speaking to the rest of the community, not so much directed at FDA, but um, at, at everyone who, who might consider themselves to be a part of tobacco control. Um, it, it's my understanding that this actually took quite a while to put this report together. Uh, and so the timing, uh, you know, this this coinciding with uh, the, the letter from the AGs and everything sort of reaching, we haven't quite reached a fever pitch yet, um, mm -hmm. but it is, it is sort of nearby uh, in terms of timeline with all of the, the the ramping up of advocacy that we've seen from the anti-groups lobbying FDA to ignore science. Um, so I don't know, uh, maybe it will have that sort of effect uh, as a, a sort of coincidentally or in this incidental right. words, um, you know what I'm trying to say though. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I again, I don't know if, if I, we had stated this in the press release, but we've certainly said this before. Um, since we're, we are, we did invoke this this report. Um, now is the time for people who identify themselves as as tobacco control um, to speak up, get off the fence. Uh, there are millions of people who need your help, and we need we need you to follow the science and not the not the hyperbolic rhetoric about substance use. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, do we have any final thoughts um, on any of this today before we before we ship out of here? My final would just be that, you know, my point is that I think people invested in this space should be paying attention to these lawsuits should, you know, perhaps set up some Google alerts for the jewel lawsuits, you know, especially uh, the ones in the MDL in San Francisco you know, keep an eye on what's happening. You know, we did see one settle already uh, when I was in the middle of making the video. Uh, I believe Jewel settled. Yeah, I said it for 40 million with North Carolina, right? So there's one. Um, so that did not result in any kind of weird MSA situation. But, you know, these RICO, civil RICO statutes can be scary for Jewel, right? Because those have very hardcore penalties. Um, and I think we ought to pay attention to what's going on with this. I think me especially, you know, before I wasn't really paying attention to the Jewel lawsuits because I was like, oh, that's Jewel. They're being sued. What Whatevsies, you know, um, but this could matter. Uh, and so one of the things that I would say is keep an eye out for this, you know, follow it, see what's going on, see what happens, follow if Jewel's going to get a PMTA, follow if there's talks of some giant settlement, see what, you know, kinds of things are going into that. That's what I, that's what it, my two cents. Alex? Um, I, I don't think I have much to add except for to echo everything that uh, Danielle has said and, and underscore, you know, this is uh, this is much bigger than just one company. Uh, and, and it will have, I think, a dramatic effect on not only people's access to the products, but people's understanding of the products. Um, and I and I I don't I don't exactly know how to stop this train. Uh, they seem to have hedged their bets pretty well. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just going to make it a lot more difficult for people to quit smoking. Yeah. Well, I'd like to just thank 
Danielle Jones here for the excellent job on that video. Uh, your two months worth of hard work and research. Uh, seriously, just just excellent job. Well done. Please, everybody, uh, earlier in the chat, uh, I did drop a link to the Truth About Vaping YouTube channel. Uh, so please, if you have not yet subscribed, please go subscribe. Uh, like Danielle said, she'll be making that video live for everybody on, on that channel Monday. Uh, that's definitely the video to share. Uh, if you missed any of that video, uh, you can still view it here. Please share share this stream as well. Feel free to. We uh, we absolutely would encourage that. But that's definitely going to be the video to share, literally everywhere. J just just send it to random phone numbers. Send, no, <laughs> you know, just but share it. Uh, share it everywhere that you can uh, because it's excellent. It's well done. It's information that we can all use. Um, and thank you to everybody uh, here today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us today here on Casa Live. Thanks, apologies thanks again. Back. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming back. I was just going to say uh, apologies again about us being gone for a little while. Most of that is my fault. You guys can blame me. I understand. <laughs> I've got broad shoulders. I can take it. Um, but thank you, everybody, for being here. We definitely appreciate it. If you have not yet signed up to become a member of Casa, what are you waiting for? Why? Bro, what are you doing? It's free. What are you doing? Do it. It's free. Uh, head over to casa.org. Uh, you can sign up. It's free. Become a member. Uh, also, while you're there, we would absolutely love it and encourage you to share your personal story uh, on our testimonials page. You can do, I think uh, Alex has got it all right here. Yeah. Boom. Look at that. Super interactive. Look at that. Look at that beautiful website. Well done, Danielle. Oh, thanks. Uh, but please, yeah, absolutely encourage everyone to share their testimonies. We have thousands and we need millions more. Uh, so head over to casa.org. Again, uh, you can head over to the clicky map um, to get involved, check your state, uh, see what calls to action we have up. All the links and everything discussed here on this program today will be available in all the descriptions. Uh, and for SoundCloud listeners or, or podcast listeners, uh, there will be two versions of this podcast that go out. There will be a full version and a quick little legislative rundown, short snippet version, where you can just get all the need to know stuff right out of the gate. Um, short, sweet, to the point, so that way we can all be the best advocates and activists that we can be. Um, and I guess that's I guess that's where we're going to wrap this week up. That's it. That's all I've got. Anybody else? No? We're good? All right. Uh, thank you guys. Stay safe out there. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody.